0: Welcome to Conversations at Mount Vernon's Washington Library. The Fred W. Smith National Library for the Study of George Washington at Mount Vernon serves as the premier resource for all who are interested in the study of George Washington and the revolutionary and founding eras. Every year, the library hosts numerous scholars who share our dedication to generate and disseminate new knowledge about all things Washington. The library's founding director, Dr. Douglas Bradburn, has the opportunity to sit down with these scholars to explore their research, and we are so excited to share those conversations with you. Today's guest is Dr. David Preston. Dr. Preston is a West Vaco Professor of National Security Studies at the Citadel. He has long been interested in studying the French and Indian War era, especially war and peace among the French, British, and Indian peoples of the time. Today, he will discuss his latest book, Braddock's Defeat, The Battle of the Monongahela and the Road to Revolution. You'll learn more about General Edward Braddock, what was at stake for all sides during this battle, and George Washington's role at Monongahela. And now, Drs. Preston and Bradburn.
1: Well, welcome back. This is Doug Bradburn. I'm the founding director of the Fred W. Smith National Library for the Study of George Washington, Washington's library here at Mount Vernon. And uh, I'm delighted to have joining me today, David Preston, who is the West, West Vaco Professor of National Security Studies at the Citadel. Uh, David, welcome to Mount Vernon. Thank you, Doug. It's my pleasure. Well, this is a, a good pleasure for me. Uh, David and I have known uh, mutual friends in the field. I think uh, I know John Coombs very well. You went to yes, William and Mary. Indeed, uh, you guys both studied with Jim Axtell, along with Phil Levy, who's here. Yes, currently at at, uh, at Mount Vernon. So it's a small world. Indeed, indeed. So, so why did you go on to to get a PhD in history? What 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 what, uh, what happened to you that you decided to make that crazy uh, choice? Growing up
2: in western Pennsylvania, I was imbued with a, a love of, of uh, the 18th century. It's hard to escape all of the, mm. the historic sites pertaining to the, uh, the beginning of the French and Indian War, Fort Necessity, and yeah. uh, of course the site of, of Braddock's Defeat and Fort Pitt. Um, and I grew up very close to the Venango Trail where, uh, where Washington first journeyed. To Fort LaBeouf as a as a young man, mm. and I think that th- those were some of the early seeds of my interest in the 18th century.
1: Yeah,
2: and uh, you know, during during my time as an undergraduate, I um, I realized that public school teaching was probably not my my cup of tea, mm. and, uh, and that I really too hard
1: too too hard the to work. <laughs> yes, <laughs> hats, <student>. hats <laughs> off to
2: all of the uh, the, yeah. the school teachers there who. Uh, you work infinitely harder than yeah. I do,
1: but that's that Western Pennsylvania world came alive to you at an early age, and you you you, le- you learned a lot of it there. Mm-hmm. I mean, history in the history profession is really cumulative in a way. I mean, you you have to learn so much before you can say anything about it. Um, that's true. I, I grew up in uh, in Williamsburg, Virginia, you know, and so the the Colonial Triangle there was always an important part of my my framework coming up. Yeah. Absolutely, visits to Williamsburg. Uh, yeah, definitely had a. So you didn't. You didn't want to well. teach public school, and and then you, but you wanted to write history at some point, right?
2: I did. I
1: I, I really
2: wanted to uh, to be able to research and write about history. Mm-hmm. Um, I had a great experience as an undergraduate at then Mary Washington College, mm-hmm. and they had a, a special program where you could uh, spend about a month in, in London, and research in the British Archives really? on a topic of your choice.
1: As part of the history degree program, mm-hmm. or that's yes. great, that's a great program, are they still doing that? Now that they're Mary Washington University? I, I don't believe they, uh, I'm not sure, not sure yeah. I'm not sure, yeah.
2: but it was a wonderful experience, a very heady experience to be able to sit in you know, the, the, the PRO at Q and to... Yeah. Order these original documents and um, go to the British Library, and that that was definitely a, a formative moment for me.
1: Oh, that that would have been uh, that would have been heaven for me. I, I was never good enough to get anything like that. That's amazing. Uh, so, uh, so you went to William and Mary. You went there. Did you go there to study with any particular person? Did you go there because it had a great graduate program in history? How did you decide to go to William and Mary? I really wanted to study with Jim Axtell mm. and uh, I had
2: uh, learned of his work and and uh, very much appreciated his methodology mm. as an ethno historian um, I admired his writing mm-hmm. um, which was just a, a model of, of clarity and precision and mm. not erudition and academies mm. Uh, so I was very fortunate that he uh, that he took me on as a as a student.
1: Oh, well, that's fantastic. So your early work, uh, and you, I, guess, I guess, do you see yourself as a Native American historian, or or a historian of the French and Indian War? Or, I mean, your your first book obviously is on the Iroquois, Iroquois, so it's much longer in a longer period of time. Yes, I, I,
2: I trained uh, very much as a as a historian of mm. of um, of early America with a. With an emphasis on on native peoples, and uh, my first book, which which dealt with uh, the relations between the Iroquois peoples and the French Canadians and the British colonists from New York down to Virginia, um, it it very much set the stage for the emergence of my my interest in in the French and Indian War, mm, mm. and re- really seeing that as a as, as a
1: very crucial moment in the 18th century yeah. so so for people who who think they they know a little bit about the French and Indian War why is it important to understand the longer history of say Iroquois to really make sense of those that decade I think that it's
2: when you when you look at um, the story of the French and Indian War in a in a global context there's a there's a case to be made that that this this whole Global war that we know of as the Seven Years' War mm. is is perhaps uh, more important than the Revolution in terms of the uh, the flow of world history. Mm. Um, no, that's that's not to denigrate the uh, the significance of the Revolution in any way, um, but only to recognize that the French and Indian War, the Seven Years' War, was was a a major shaping event that doesn't always get the uh, the the attention that it that it deserves. Mm-hmm. Scholars that are so, especially American scholars, are so apt to to gravitate to the revolution again with 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 good reason.
1: Well, yeah. So a lot of you French and Indian War historians like to call the Great War for Empire uh, is the war. That's the war of the 18th century that shapes everything that comes after. Uh, you know, so I, I get that. I, I I'm willing uh, in the in the purposes of this conversation to. To, to to deal with that, but is that that's kind of the framework you uh, you, you share with uh, you know some other famous historians? Gibson, of course, comes to mind. Right, um, Fred Anderson, I think, similarly. Mm-hmm. Uh, where where do you where are you taking the story? I guess so you, in, in that regard.
2: Well, this this brings me to the kind of the genesis of mm-hmm. um, my book on on Braddock's defeat. Great, it, right. it, it very much began the, the initial. Uh, idea behind it was a was a kind of collective biography of some of the mm. famous individuals who were at Braddock's defeat and then who who went on to become very influential persons in the American Revolution mm. and I, I wanted to uh, explore the the connections between these two key moments of the 18th century mm. mm-hmm. through the through the lives of these of these individuals so
1: yeah right. So the, the book is Braddock's defeat, the Battle of the Monongahela, and the road to revolution. So there, you had to throw that in there, and the road to revolution. Absolutely. Because obviously, the revolution matters at some level. Absolutely. Uh, that's not forced upon you by the uh, by the press. No, that was yeah. very much implicit in
2: mm-hmm. the um the again the initial design of the book and. Um, the, the principal some of the principal characters I, I develop in there are of course George Washington, Horatio Gates, Charles Lee, uh, Thomas Gage, Daniel Morgan, mm-hmm. and uh, some also some French Canadian and and uh, yeah. and Native characters. But what what, what held the story together initially was this this uh, remarkable coincidence that a lot of those individuals were together again. Mm. 20 years later at the siege of Boston.
1: Yeah, that is extraordinary. So 1755 to 1775. And, uh, and, and we'll definitely, let's come back to that in a moment. The book is in the Pivotal Moments in American History series with, with, with Oxford uh, and uh, edited by David Hackett Fisher, Jim McPherson, and David Greenberg. And, uh, and this puts you in, I think, you know, great company because there's some fantastic studies in their studies which seems to me and maybe you could tell me uh, but I mean is the, the intention is for them to be scholarly but accessible right. that's
2: that's correct um, they're they're intended to be very narrative driven mm-hmm. and uh, yes it accessible to a broader audience but but also um, with with uh, an academic Uh, Hmm. outreach as well
1: an apparatus that's scholarly you're not making stuff up right
2: (laughs) and that's and that's why in part why i i was uh the 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 pivotal moment series was was very much my first choice in terms of uh um
1: a a publisher well it strikes me that a lot of the a lot of the books in that series are about battles or about wars because they're they're episodic and narrative in a way that you can tell a great story, but then you can also step back and say, and this changed everything, you know, or, or I mean, you, obviously you guys don't do it like that, but you, you, that's the pivot part, right? I mean, right. they have to be, something's going to happen after or because of this, this battle.
2: Right, and I, indeed, I had to, to think about just the <laughs> the, the meaning of, <laughs> of pivotal moment. What yeah. what was pivotal about, about yeah. Braddock's defeat in the sense of, of, a kind
1: of... It was hint. pivotal for Braddock. <laughs> I mean you got the title yeah. right. Yeah, you could have called it Braddock's Death, I guess, but yeah. Right. Uh, when, when did it start being known as Braddock's Defeat? Was that uh, always what it was? Does it have another name? This is a, a crucial question and, mm-hmm. and uh, one that I had to
2: investigate simply because so many people think that it was it was a name later Devised by historians, but mm-hmm. uh, in 1755, not only the British but also the French mm-hmm. are referring to this battle as Braddock's defeat. Wow, La even De Fete, the, even the Fra- French, the Braddock,
1: yeah. is that right? Yeah. Well, it's it's interesting because I, I recently had a conversation with Colin Calloway about you know the battle with no name, which is a name a battle that is similar to Braddock's defeat mm-hmm. in, in in many ways, but it's it, it's rarely you know called. Uh, Sinclair's defeat, or whoever's defeat it was, right? Um, but right. but at any rate, yeah, so, so it's interesting to me that Braddock's defeat was called that by both sides right as away. As early as 1755. Mm. Um, contemporaries also refer
2: to it uh, variously as the Battle of the Monongahela, or the, yeah. for the French, the action at the Monongahela. Mm. Mm. Um, and, and essentially, historians use those terms rather interchangeably, you know, well well into the, the 19th century. Yeah. You know, people like Parkman um, used both terms yeah. to describe the, the affair.
1: Well, one of the things I'll have to show you here, if we have time uh, after this conversation, is one of our early acquisitions in the library is a play written by George Washington Park Custis. which Right. Is George, it's a story of George Washington on the Monongahela, uh, and it has a romance in it between a Native American. So you know this. You're shaking your head. So you... You must have seen this
2: already. I, I have, and, and uh, it's that play, if I remember correctly, that helps to give birth to one of the uh, the, the legends of, of Washington at the Gahela, that oh, Which is? the um, That there was an, an Indian who was present at the battle, and uh, he encounters Washington during, uh, I guess it was his either 1770 or 1784
1: trip it's the 70 it's the 70 trip that's before the revolution
2: yeah and uh and tells him that he had fired multiple shots at him but washington had been protected by the great spirit Mm -hmm. now unfortunately i i I couldn't interview god to to confirm that Mm -hmm. whether or not he in fact preserved washington but uh it was a
1: common opinion of the time (laughs) yeah
2: Uh, I, I did find no no contemporary <laughs> evidence <laughs> of of, uh, of that, uh, so it, it does appear to be something that was um, mm. a, a story that was told, perhaps even after Washington's death. Mm, interesting. Um, Washington says um, that he he met with um, with a Seneca leader in that seventeen seventy trip, but he did not say anything about. The Monongahela. Yeah, he specifically mentions that he had met him during his uh, 1753 journey. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, the trip to Fort
1: Le bon. Right. Although there were many people that were there that were at the Monongahela as well. Now, um, well, so let's take let's go through the book. So, t- talk a little bit about the first the story of, of the book since it's narratively driven. Give the the listening audience the general sense of sort of what is the story you tell. How does it begin? How does it end?
2: Braddock's defeat is, is one of the most important battles of North American history before 1775. And it ranks as one of the, the greatest military catastrophes in the entire history of the British Army. Mm-hmm. Uh, the two out of every three British soldiers who crossed the Monongahela River on July 9th were killed or wounded mm. in the space of four hours. So part of the story of of this book is, is simply the the slaughter no. and the horror of this of this battle. Uh, but it's the, the book is, is not just a a sto- the story of a battle, but I, I wanted to capture the the broadest context of this struggle between French Canadians. Mm. British colonists and Indian peoples for the Ohio Valley. Hmm. Why the, the British and French empires made the decisions that they did yeah. to to risk war with one another over this remote corner of the world that that the imperial officials themselves had very little yeah. knowledge of.
1: Alright, so let's let's take it through then the, the let we'll do four groups, you can add more. But so then you tell me sort of what's at stake. So so what's at stake for the British Empire, the imperialists, the ministry, uh, for this remote corner of the world? By the 1750s, there is a real sense of
2: uh, crisis. I don't think that's too strong of a word. No, I think that's in, right. In British America, on a number of levels. The British ministry is, is very alarmed at what they see as a number of French encroachments on British claims all mm-hmm. across North America. Um, To make this situation even more volatile, by the early 1750s, um, British relations with Native peoples in North America is really at a nadir. Mm -hmm. And it appears as though that the French are well on their way to um, dominance of certainly the continent's interior, um, as well as dominance of... of, um, of Indian alliances mm-hmm. and, and the combination of those two threatens the, the very future of the British Empire mm-hmm. in America certainly in the colonist view but also yeah. in the, the minds of imperial officials uh, so what about the Virginians what's at stake for them in the Ohio uh, four letters L-A-N-D, mm-hmm. land mm-hmm. Um, Virginia okay. was the most aggressive in, in advancing the interests of um, not only themselves, but, but also the, the empire, being that they were loyal Britons. Um, and so for, for them, access to the Ohio Valley was, uh, was not just a means of, of gaining land, but also trade. They, they knew strategically that if they were able to get a foothold in the Ohio Valley, that it would uh, it would potentially have a, a kind of domino effect on... Um, French Indian alliances, that so they could mm-hmm. essentially draw more native groups into uh, a British orbit and in doing so interfere
1: with with France, New France's ability yeah. to to control that that interior. So what about the French colonists? What's at stake for them in the Ohio? Containment. Mm-hmm. Um, by the
2: 1750s uh, New France is, is, uh, is, is not a, a profitable colony long-term. Mm-hmm. The French realize that. Um, they very much see the, the purpose of the colony as one of, of strategic containment of, of British expansion. Mm. And they also... They're incur- not interested in expanding their own settlement at all. No, uh, yeah. and, and that's partly just a function of, of the... The, uh, the type of empire they ran. Yeah, the low, yeah. The low numbers of, of, uh, mm-hmm. of immigrants to the colony, yeah. the fact that they're all pretty much concentrated in the St. Lawrence Valley. Mm-hmm. Um, so they, they increasingly become aware of the importance of the Ohio Valley by, by the mid-18th century. Mm-hmm. And uh, they not only claim it, in in an imperial sense, but they also see it as a as a as a an extra corridor from yeah. which they can they can block uh, British America. They they recognize the the demographic pressure that's right. that's at work here. Yeah,
1: well only a blind person would, would, wouldn't at that point. Right. But I love the the great story I love about the early seventeen fifties and the French in the Ohio is when they send that expedition down there and they start replanting these big lead or I guess they're lead, lead plates, uh, lead plates everywhere. <laughs> and doing these little rituals. What's that about? What's that story?
2: That was a that was a really a reflection of um, of how how uh, concerned the French were at the loss of control mm. in the Ohio Valley mm. during the seventeen forties. British traders began to make incredible inroads yeah. um, into the Ohio Valley, and the French realized that th- this was really. Uh, potentially disastrous situation. So, yeah. the purpose of that expedition was to, uh, you know, reassert French claims, but also to intimidate um, Native peoples. Yeah. That and uh, the
1: occasional English trader that was out there. They, yeah.
2: Exactly. If they if yeah. they encountered any uh, traders, they would be yeah. arrested or whatnot. So I'm sure f- that the Indians, when they saw those lead plates, and once the <laughs> French were out of sight, they probably just took those and melted them into. Uh, <laughs> Well, there's some (laughs) great. Well, you're
1: from Western Pennsylvania, so you probably know. But there's some great stories of the discovery of some of these in like the 1850s and later on, where they things coming out of the ground. Anyway, so so what about Native peoples? Uh, I imagine there's many different ways to approach this. How about the Native peoples who lived in the Ohio Valley? What was at stake for them? Well, and who were they?
2: um, Really, a a kind of combination of three different groups in the Ohio Valley. Well, call it call it four. You had Senecas. Um in, in uh, the vicinity of Lake Erie, there were Shawnees, there were Delawares, uh, there were Ohio Iroquois. Um, and these are, these are peoples that had been on the receiving end of a of, uh, of British settlement expansion for a, a long time. And they a lot of them had emigrated to the Ohio Valley uh, a, as a result of being dispossessed and mm. various uh, frauds perpetrated by different British governments, or just as a result of, of again, just settlement pressure on the frontier. So they, they, they took a lot of grievances with them, and they certainly had plenty of, um, of reason to be concerned about um, British expansion. Um, the Delawares, they, they speak of the Appalachian Mountains as a, as a kind of barrier between themselves, the British. I think their mm. their hope is that that will be a a, a kind of permanent barrier. No, of the Delaware River border. wasn't. <laughs> the Delaware the Dela River was, was, was definitely yeah. one. Um, yeah. the, inter- the, the, the fascinating thing about Native participation in 1755 mm. in, in Braddock's expedition is that the, the Native peoples who are most immediately threatened by British expansion are in the end the ones that are the most neutral or non-committal and Mm. the ones who are furthest removed Mm. from from contact with the British are the ones that are uh, the the most uh, Most aggressive the most aggressive and and the most committed to the French alliance
1: well so I guess they're they're the farthest from the British meaning they're they're right in the heart of New France essentially. Right. The, or they're they're economically the, inter- so partnered with New France. Right. You know they are true allies.
2: <clears throat> and unfortunately historians uh have, have never really looked at hmm. uh, the the French and the Indian perspective on yeah. this 1755 expedition. It's always been written about from from an anglo Ang- yeah. anglocentric point of view. Yeah. And one of my um my Findings in the book was was uh, detailing this this coalition of twenty different nations, Indian nations or communities that were part of of um, the, this French army, French and Indian mm. allied army yeah. that defeated Braddock, and and that coalition essentially is coming from three major regions: um, the Ohio Valley, um, the Great Lakes region, and then the St. Lawrence Valley. Okay. And and that, the Saint Lawrence Valley, of course, was was home to. Um,
1: so the old the, Hurons uh, or what? Uh, right, they?
2: there were the, the Hurons of Lorette. Yeah. Um, different different. Those are uh, old
1: Christian Indian allies. And, indeed.
2: Uh, Abenaki right. communities. Yeah. um Canadian, so they've been, Canadian. They've been Euroquois. friends of the
1: French for hundred years by this time.
2: Right, and and, and nominally yeah. Catholic, so they right. there were there were exceptionally strong bonds of alliance. Uh, between the French Canadians and were this. they
1: the largest group in this in this or, or the, each of these three parts equal uh, you know. how many Indians are we talking about how, how big was the French army and how many Indians and then how many of that group I guess it, it's hard to
2: know precisely because the the French in right. their in their records uh, only provide rough estimates you know, uh, what, 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 six hundred to seven hundred yeah. um, is is the usual figure that you see in the yeah. French records from yeah. From the time of the Um how that breaks down according to yeah. to groups is, is hard to tell. Um, probably something like a
1: you know a third
2: from from each mm. from each region.
1: Are there are there stories that are that were told? I mean, about this defeat amongst the native peoples, uh, and did they differ in those different areas, or how long did they live on? Well, this heroes that were made.
2: Um, coming at this project from my, my last book on the Iroquois peoples, hmm. I was very keen to, um, and, and, and very aware of the, the need to try to find native perspectives on the Monongahela. Hmm. Best, best case scenario would have been finding a, you know, some type of account of an eyewitness who had, who had been there, a yeah. warrior who had fought against Braddock. Yeah. And, yeah. You know, perhaps had his his account of the battle recorded by a mm. you know a French Jesuit or a, right. a British trader. There is not a single mm. such eyewitness testimony from any native combatant. Mm. Unfortunately, there are glimmers of um, in, in the historical record of the the effect of of Braddock's defeat on native uh, mm. perceptions and and actions. I argue in the book that it's it is perhaps the greatest Native American victory uh, of the 18th century. It is it is certainly the purest. And what I mean by that is that it it, it meets on so many levels the the Natives' definitions of what constituted success in war and battle. Um, consider for, for just a moment 99% of these, these 600 to 700 warriors live to tell the story. Mm, mm. And... They, uh, they achieve a decisive, stunning victory over an enemy at low cost to themselves. Uh, they also start going home the very next day, mm-hmm. <laughs> leaving the French yeah. Uh, yeah. very much flat-footed and defenseless. Um, and They didn't take any prisoners. Very few. There's, uh,
1: Indians like their captives.
2: Yeah, the, just because of the nature of the battle, I think yeah. there, were, there were just very few opportunities to, to take many
1: captives. Um, There wasn't a mass slaughter of wounded men on the ground afterward or that definitely happened there were Mm. um, and and one of the uh,
2: the, You know the the trophies that native warriors are taking back to their their communities are British scalps. Mm. There are many many uh, Mm. uh, Accounts of of, on both the French and British sides of of of, of natives taking scalps home. Mm. They're also taking War material yeah. that they have um, that they have gleaned from Braddock's defeated yeah. army, yeah. and there are fascinating accounts in the eighteenth century record of um, of these these artifacts of of the Monongahela showing up all over the continent. One of my favorites mm. is uh, in seventeen seventy six, um, British General Carleton in Canada receives a delegation of natives from the Great Lakes and there is a uh, a German officer who records this story, uh, that, uh, the story that the the native Sachem was Was wearing General Braddock's coat mm. and that his his young son was wearing General Braddock's waistcoat mm.
1: um, Now that seems unlikely uh, given that he was buried and <laughs> uh, right? Yeah
2: it <laughs>
1: could have been somebody's coat and waistcoat. It, it,
2: it, it could have yeah. been, for example, uh, um, Sir Peter Halkett's uh, yeah. uniform. Yeah. He was he was killed in action at the battle, mm. uh, and of course the regimental commander of the 44th Foot. Yeah, but there are all sorts of stories of of British uniforms, yeah, sure horses, have. saddles, um, mm-hmm. flags mm-hmm. taken from the British at the Monongahela, mm-hmm. and. I argue in the book that um, that, that the success of the Monongahela very much set the tone for for native participation in the rest of the French and Indian uh, War. Mm. It really leads to a, a kind of surge of of native participation yeah. on the French side, and it, it, mm. the decisions of native peoples to commit to the French is one of the reasons why this war escalates. And it was
1: like to ride a strong horse, right? I mean, you want to be on the winning side in these things, for sure. They very much want to replicate
2: that success yeah. in, in yeah. future battles.
1: Yeah, interesting. So what what is the hidden seeds of native defeat built in there, the hubris of that moment there, right? <laughs> That's how historians would often tell these tales, I imagine, but uh, you probably don't want to go that direction. <laughs>
2: <coughs> well, that... Let's talk about hubris and, and, and <laughs> well, arrogance. Let's do that yeah. uh, because that—that is—that—that yeah. uh, that I think is one of the the foundations of virtually all interpretations of of General Braddock. Of Braddock's play. behavior, yeah, and uh, and certainly of, of of Braddock's defeat. Yeah. Okay. Well, let's
1: talk about it from the British side then. So, so um, <clears throat> the English send over a couple of regiments uh, and. Uh, they want to get participation from some colonial regiments as well, and they're gonna they're gonna seize the Ohio. They're gonna seize the, the forks of the Ohio. They're gonna seize the French fort out there. Right. That's that's what's happening. Right. And this this is this what is year quite, is this? What is the what is the date? How does it how does it work? The
2: the stimulus for the British government to to take action is um, is Washington's defeat at Fort Necessity. Mm-hmm. Um, news of when news of that arrives in London um, basically in the month of September 1754 the the general parameters of General Braddock's expedition are are already outlined Mm. Uh, Braddock has been selected as the commander-in-chief the British government's decided to send two regiments from Ireland with a strong complement of artillery Um, it's already been decided to land these troops in Virginia rather than in Pennsylvania or mm-hmm. elsewhere. Mm-hmm. And even even Braddock's line of march um, is, is defined in mm-hmm. Potomac Valley. He's, he's going to advance via um, Fort Cumberland mm-hmm. and then cross over the mountains. Mm-hmm. Um, that was a I I was very fascinated by the decision-making there. Um, yeah. Because Braddock's is, is actually one of four um, expeditions that the British will let loose on New France in seventeen
1: fifty five, and the grand strategy—it's got all these forts being taken right. all over the place and, in North America—to apply simultaneous yeah. pressure
2: along all the frontiers yeah. of, of of New France. The, the, what what I find so fascinating about that decision is that it's. Um, it's very much intended to prevent a broader war with France. Mm. Mm. In other words, the the British government believes that they want to contain this in North America. Yes, you're saying by, yeah. by, by by applying military force mm. that they can contain a broader war in America. Mm. And it's it, it's obviously a very risky presumption mm. and and a great gamble. The French, though, did exactly the same thing. Mm in 1753 When they they took the risky decision of sending a huge force. Yeah. of 2,600 men to begin occupying the Ohio Valley mm. and I, I observe in the book that this large French force 2,600 men that's that's Slightly larger by a hair than Braddock's entire army mm. in, in 1755 mm. and the French also take that risk that that by militarily invading the Ohio
1: Valley they and would seize it, and that would be it. Yeah, yes, that they would they would. They could build their forts. It'd be a fait accompli, fait as accompli, as they would say, right? Yes, may mm? 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 <laughs> we? <laughs> yeah, great. So they make the grand stroke. So they, right. they're both of them interested in these grand strokes because they don't want to they don't want a long drawn out, uh, indecisive, expensive. Uh, you know, niggling little war going mm-hmm. on, right? They they want to get this over with, right? To to resolve in the field what couldn't be resolved in the in the uh, in, in the diplomatic chamber, right? Over this frontier, mm-hmm. and also um,
2: resolve from the British government's perspective to resolve what the uh, the colonists seemed incapable of doing, yeah. And well, right,
1: yeah. So I imagine there was a lot of eye rolling when news of Fort Necessity. Uh, Most uh, definitely hit the uh, hit the
2: boardroom there. Right, yeah. and I think one of the interesting aspects of um, the composition of, of Braddock's army is that uh, the it, it included royal regiments. Mm. There there was discussion in 1754 of um, of raising an American regiment right. as, the, as they had done the new regiment yeah. in in uh, the War of Jenkins' Ear. Yeah. Um, but this this was a, a decision that uh, that was very much framed in this context of we got these, to get, get this done right. We don't have time to mess around.
1: That the the, the, the colonial
2: Americans are yeah. militarily deficient.
1: Yeah. Well, no, in particularly their officer corps, I would imagine, right? They would, would see the the officer corps as particularly a, a weak. You can train up a soldier from probably anywhere, but if you don't right. have the officers, so. Um, so Braddock, why, why Braddock? Uh, you know, I always back when I, I, you know, back when I was teaching this kind of stuff, I, I didn't, uh, I probably didn't get the story right, but my, my sense was that Braddock had not had much command experience in war, and was known best for marching troops around in England. Uh, and so, why was he chosen of all people to take on this challenge?
2: And that's a that's a wonderful question, and um, Braddock again is just. Has become so mythologized yeah. that he he is kind of this exemplar of uh, kind of the Hyde Park discipline, mm. Um, mm. and so I I did something very simple as a historian, mm. and that was to sim- simply investigate his career. Yeah. Um, we've known, for example, that that Braddock um, was the, the commander in chief and the lieutenant governor of the garrison of Gibraltar. Mm. Uh, one of the most important British possessions yeah. in their their empire um, nobody has ever looked at what he intently did. at his time as commander there in 1753 and 54 oh. and uh, I argue in the book that uh, this was an, a, a command experience that very much qualified Braddock for command in America hmm. um, it, it justified the British government's selection of him,
1: well, and for holding a stronghold, right? That's surrounded right. by enemies. <laughs>
2: yeah, and and you know, Gibraltar is 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 a um, it's a heavily fortified garrison, bristling with with literally hundreds of of pieces of artillery. Yeah. it was a it was a, a kind of a school in siege warfare.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And what was Braddock being asked to do in America? Mm-hmm. He was being asked to besiege French outposts mm-hmm. along the frontiers.
1: Um, yeah, but Gibraltar supplied by the Navy, <laughs> you wonder right. how that would have worked. <laughs> but yeah, that's a great point. I mean, I think that's a really nice, nicely put point. Yeah. So he arrives in America, and what's that like for him? He, he get he comes to Alexandria. They meet at the Carlisle House. You've been to the Carlisle House, I take it. I have that beautiful wonderful room sight- where you know they must have met. Mm-hmm. It's a wonderful place to be. Right. All right. So what ha- what happens?
2: Braddock very much has a, a rude awakening to political, military, diplomatic, and logistic difficulties of mm-hmm. war in America. Mm-hmm. Um, this, this campaign occurs at a time when there is much discussion about the political constitution of British America. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, there, there are fears being expressed even in 1754-55 of um, American independency. Um, that the the colonial assemblies are too republican, and Braddock very much runs headlong into those uh, those dynamics. Mm. He is distraught at the lack of cooperation that he's receiving from um, from colonial governments. Yeah, and he is very surprised by difficulties of even getting things like wagons and fodder, Mm -hmm. um, as well as as colonial Mm recruits to to bring up his regiments to full strength. Um, Had it not been for um, two individuals, his deputy quartermaster general, Sir John St. Clair, and uh, also Benjamin Franklin, this campaign would have failed logistically. Mm -hmm. And they probably would have got not gotten any further than uh, perhaps Winchester. Mm-hmm. Um, so, logistically, Braddock's expedition was was conducted on kind of a shoestring type of mm-hmm. of uh, budget. Mm-hmm. You know, Braddock had enough supplies, enough horses to, to basically make one shot at Fort Duquesne.
1: Now, the, the typical story is of, uh, of his leadership. Is about his inability to sort of, um, I guess, negotiate would be. Mm-hmm. We're in a Trumpian era. He could have negotiated better deals. I mean, he was a brash guy who was right. He was uh, impatient with uh, with the colonials. He, he 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 knew that he had the right to get this stuff, and so why can't I get this stuff? Is that the case? I mean, is that what you're finding that he he has a temperament which exacerbates? These challenges of working in America as it's as it's constituted in that time.
2: Right, he's definitely impatient, but um, mm. I, I I argue that he is um, he is an utter realist. Mm. Uh, this idea that that Braddock um, was naive, that he really doesn't mm. he's he's out of his element, right? Um, just not true. And again, this. This is based on his own correspondence,
1: yeah.
2: um, which which historians don't like to quote. It's it's far better and, and more entertaining to quote all of Braddock's enemies yeah. that are writing after he's dead, and you know leave behind these you know scandalous yeah. and uh, and uh, demeaning statements about oh. his character. So you think you rejuvenate
1: Braddock a little bit in the book?
2: He he ran. You give him a you give him a more realistic. Uh, he ran an excellent campaign mm-hmm. up until the, the the moment of his defeat. Yeah. Uh, you know how that
1: sounds, Dave. <laughs> and this, this the campaign is where, isn't over yeah. until it's over. Yeah,
2: that's true. <laughs> that's true. Yeah. Um, so, this is this yeah. is where yeah. uh, my my field work um, of, of yeah. tracing and walking mm. most of the the uh, extant sections of, of Braddock's Road was yeah. was really an awakening. Um, for him to, based on all of these challenges—again, logistically, yeah. um, politically—for him to um, to get within essentially twelve miles of his destination mm-hmm. and to to conquer the Appalachian Mountains in that short of time yes. is, is a, a miraculous achievement. From that
1: direction, yeah. Right. Uh, okay, so so he did, so it was a remarkable achievement to get the army there uh, across the. 18th century landscape. Um, tell me about some of these other characters. So you have you have all these men who end up meeting each other again, or or at least being in the vicinity again twenty years later around Boston. Uh, we obviously need to get to Washington by the end of this conversation. But tell me about uh, tell you about some of the other, give me two of the others who really strike you. One is Gage. Let's talk about Thomas Gage. How does he fit into the story?
2: Yeah, Gage is is uh, the lieutenant colonel of the 44th Regiment and he was the commander of the advance party of, uh, of Braddock's column mm. on July 9th 1755 mm. um, he is, uh, is is often and, and how does he I, survive? I, uh, that's the question oh, yeah <laughs> he, he's uh, he, like Washington he has mm. he has a near scrape with, with death he mm. has bullet holes through his clothing he has a one or two grazing wounds, mm-hmm. um, again indicating that he he was narrowly, very narrowly uh, killed or at least wounded in action. Mm-hmm. Um, historians often, um, and I think wrongly, uh, ascribe some blame to him for um, the disaster on July 9th. Mm-hmm. and that's in keeping again with with always looking for. British foibles or British mistakes to mm-hmm. explain what happened what what really happened as I investigated French sources as I as I discovered a, an entirely new uh, French account of the Monongahela mm. is that it heightened my uh, respect for the tactics that the French commander Captain Beaujeu employed on that day mm. and uh, Beaujeu and and uh, the Indians essentially collapse Gage's advanced party in the early moments of the battle. His command literally disintegrates despite his mm-hmm. valiant attempts to uh, to arrest it. Mm-hmm. Um, the Monongahela has a, um, an equally profound impact on Gage as it did on Washington mm. um, in the sense that they, they both perceive that the lesson of, of this is, is uh, the need to adapt mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. In, in the years to come, uh, Gage will propo- propose and uh, receive the authority to form the British Army's first light infantry regiment mm. in its history.
1: Yeah. And that's the, that's the doing of Thomas Gage. I mean, that's right out of his experience there. That's right. amazing. Yeah. So, so what about uh, another person other than Washington? Maybe Butler, or not Butler, um.
2: Horatio Gates. Let's okay. Let's Gates. Talk so about granny it. Gates wasn't a <laughs> Horatio, granny yet. Horatio Gates. Um, yeah. He was a company commander at the Minuteman. He commanded the um, the Fourth New York Independent Company, which was one of the um, unregimented companies, technically part of the British Army. Hmm. Um, and these were basically garrison forces along the frontier of New York. Mm-hmm. Um, Gates had already seen. Where were they uh, typically
1: stationed? Were they in Albany or? I mean,
2: usually on the on the right in the frontier areas, the, the okay. Mohawk Valley, right. Hudson Valley. Okay. There were also uh, there were four independent companies in New York, three in South Carolina. Mm-hmm. Um, Gates had, had seen some action previously in Nova Scotia. He uh, he joins Braddock's expedition in uh, early 1755. Um, at the Monongahela, he is wounded. He loses literally 78 percent of his company to give hmm. to give us some idea of the hmm. the slaughter that he that he hmm. witnessed. Hmm. Um, and Gage will. Uh, Will go on to serve uh, in the remainder of this, the, the the Seven Years' War, and uh, Gates, Gates, yeah, Gates, yeah. Uh, he will um, after the after the, the war. Um, he becomes essentially a Republican. Mm. Um, he's we, we could classify him as among the uh, the the American friends. Right yeah. in uh, in Britain at that time, hmm. um, people who sympathized with the the, the colonists um, and very much espoused their ideology. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So
1: Gates, do you think this came from leading those men into battle, or had an impact, or do you you have no idea? Just was sympathetic to the, the American cause.
2: It's it's hard to say. I yeah. I, I certainly investigated uh, uh, Gates's life and career. Mm-hmm. I went through the. Horatio Gates papers at the New York Historical Society um, and and they it, it's hard to chart his political evolution mm. but we know that that in the 1760s certainly by the early 70s that he is a he's a firm Republican mm. and mm. he uh, he comes to he, he essentially abandons England in uh, 1772 and uh, um, again for for political reasons, yeah. as he as he states.
1: All right, well, so there's a lot more in the book, obviously, to talk about, but let's uh, wrap this conversation up with a mm-hmm. little chat about George Washington. Okay. Uh, well, I'll let you go ahead. Why don't you just go ahead? I mean, so George, how does he end up being a part of the uh, the expedition itself? He's no longer in uh, the army at the time that right. Braddock arrives. Right, and uh, the, the fact that he... Had
2: resigned his his commission mm-hmm. um, in 1754 had much to do with um, the decision of Gov- Governor Dinwiddie to break apart the, um, the Old Virginia Regiment mm-hmm. um, which essentially meant that Washington lost his command but Dinwiddie was responding in certain respects to the British government's decision to um, to send over an expedition of royal troops mm rather than raising a colonial regiment right. along the model of Gooch's mm-hmm. American regiment um, it says something about Braddock that he, he recognized Washington's experience mm. on the frontier and, uh, and sought him out as a, as a member of his staff his military family as, mm-hmm. as it was called back then yeah. um, Washington put a lot of hopes in this opportunity Seems. He did, and and there there is some some evidence that uh, that Braddock would have um, would have been his his patron, hmm. um, and advocated for him receiving a, a royal commission. Hmm. Um, of course, Braddock's death cut short that possibility.
1: Yeah, um, he, he, Washington's used to that by this point of his potential patrons dying. Right. Yeah. Um, but yeah, he did. To, if I remember his letters at that time period well, I mean he. He is, he expressly says to his brother, I think you know the, there's there's going to be you know I see a potential opportunity here in this relationship. Right. Yeah. I I would characterize the the relationship between
2: the two less as father and son, and I know that some historians have have kind of made that aspersion, but I, I think there's um, there's more tension between the two. Mm-hmm. Ultimately, I I view the relationship between Braddock and and Washington as as kind of a personification of the relationship between the empire and the colonies. Well, that's
1: nice. Yes. Uh, that's interesting because you see that in the Forbes campaign. I mean, you see right. that sort of tension in, in that relationship, you know, where Washington's kind of really mm-hmm. angry that Forbes is go, going a different route. He's, you know, not taking his advice. He's right. like doing his own design of a line of battle and mm-hmm. that kind of thing. But you, you see some of this in the Braddock move as well. Right, and uh, Washington, for example, he he mentions
2: that uh, in in informal discussions, okay. you know, with Braddock's uh, Braddock's staff, he he says that um, there were very warm disputes carried on about essentially the nature of the colonies, mm. you know, wh- why they were um, in Braddock's view uncooperative, and, mm, mm, and you yeah. can see that that Washington was was. Advocating for the the colonies. Yeah, more sympathetic, obviously. More sympathetic. Yeah. The other interesting thing is that dealing with this kind of father son dynamic is that in the end, Braddock and Washington did not spend the entire campaign together. Mm. Um, Washington joins Braddock on May 1st. He's with him for about two weeks before Braddock sends him back. All the way to Hampton to uh, to gain money and, and financial support from a from a paymaster. Hmm. Um, by the time that Washington returns, it's late May, yeah. and he he only spends another two weeks essentially with Braddock, and that's when Washington falls so yeah, Ill. so ill yeah. that um, he's essentially out of commission. Lead, yeah, and uh, when Braddock on Washington's uh, advice and concurrence decides to split his army, Washington gets left behind. Mm. And um, Braddock did make a promise to Washington that that once he got near Fort Duquesne that he would send for him and bring him forward. And Braddock does honor that promise and Washington is able to rejoin the Just commander. in time. Just in time. Uh, July eighth. Yeah. yeah. Seventeenth. I'm here, guys. Yeah. Um, my yeah. my favorite um, aspect of Washington's performance at the Monongahela is considering that that he was so incapacitated, even on July eighth, that he arrives in a covered wagon. Mm-hmm. He's so ill, even on the day of the the battle, that he. He says that he has to mount his horse with cushions. Yeah. Um, and yet he's able to go into this fight, behave with with by by all accounts incredible gallantry. Uh, he's praised from all all quarters, including regular British officers.
1: Mm. And so he's in there. He's in there. Reports of the battle. Absolutely. He shows up. He gets you know he gets special mention right for his behavior. He
2: he does. And he is the. Um, the sole adrenaline does great things (laughs) adrenaline yes and uh and I think it says something about Washington's command potential that that he um was able to he rises to the occasion he he rises to the occasion absolutely and um he is the sole unwounded aide in Braddock's staff um and is is essentially uh inheriting Mm. command he's he's giving the generals orders yeah and uh, helping to to rally the the army as it as it's disintegrating. We could stop there, and Washington's behavior would have been uh, exceptional. Yeah. But Braddock then commissions him to ride sixty miles back to um, the rest of the army that was um, that was under the command of, of Colonel Thomas Dunbar. Yeah. And they were in a base camp, basically, on a place called Chestnut Ridge, Mm -hmm. uh, approximately 57 miles from the field of battle. Um, Washington rides through the night, um, arriving early the morning of July 10th at Dunbar's camp. Um, And it really says something, I think, about um, what Revolutionary War scholars know about Washington's
1: stamina. Mm and his,
2: his, his physical endurance.
1: Oh, that's extraordinary. Uh, so then what, what, what do you take on the, the longer term? I mean, the immediate implications that Washington, uh, you know, emerges in the Virginians' mind as this, you know, hero again, and he's gonna beg to come back in, we're gonna reconstitute the Virginia regiment, we need to protect the frontier. But what are the longer term impacts on Washington the, of this experience, you think? I'll highlight Um, the military
2: uh, legacy of Braddock's defeat for Washington Um, I think Washington in his command of both the Virginia Regiment in the later years of the French and Indian War and then on to his, his command and framing of the Continental Army that um he he very much recognizes the need for for discipline. Mm. Um, he saw what had happened to the to the British redcoats at the Monongahela. He recognizes discipline is 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 crucial, mm. and so in that sense, yes, he uh, he very much emphasizes um, training the Virginia regiment along conventional lines. There's no question of that. At the same time, though, Washington uh, always has a a great respect for the abilities of um, of native warriors of irregulars and I was very struck in in reading about his is uh, leadership of the Virginia regiment and it, its training that it, it's very much a hybrid force mm. I think scholars have, have so often emphasized that Washington was conventionally minded they, they've lost sight of the fact that that here was a here was a uh, a military innovator in some respects, that mm. that uh, that trained his men in light infantry tactics, that espoused um, soldiers dressing like Indians. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. There's there're wonderful accounts of of Andrew Lewis leading uh, soldiers of the Virginia Regiment in Forbes' campaign, and they're all decked out in Indian Guard mm. um, And I think that that's that's an aspect again of Washington's command of the Continental Army that's. It's often lost. Yeah. Absolutely, he wanted a respectable army yeah. that could that could do battle head on with with any British army. But he consistently cooperates with the militia, yeah. um, with with irregulars. He um, he reaches out diplomatically to um, potential Native allies. So I, I think overall that that um, Washington's. Legacy from the is is a, a kind of conjunction of irregular and regular warfare.
1: Yeah, that's great. I, I really appreciate that. Um, there's a certain flexibility, and he doesn't want discipline to do maneuvers on parade. I mean, that's not the point. I mean, discipline is important in operations on battlefields that are asymmetrical as much as anything. So right. It's interesting. That's really well done. Um, it's a great book, and uh, you've already had a lot of acclaim for it. So, congratulations to you. Uh, I'm very much looking forward to the talk tonight, and I would encourage everybody to go listen to the talk as well. But um, you know, uh, any any final thoughts on the Braddock's defeat?
2: Um, I'm I'm just extremely grateful to. Um... The staff and the curators at Mount Vernon for the invitation, and uh, also the the extraordinary privilege of uh, of seeing General Braddock's sash. Oh, that's right. That's great. Evening.
1: So yeah, so you've never seen it
2: before. I believe I saw it in the Clash of Empires exhibit.
1: Okay. Yeah, I
2: don't over know. a decade ago.
1: So it, it rarely makes an appearance. It's uh, so This is a sash that George Washington took from Braddock on the battlefield. I presumably given by Braddock or mm-hmm. taken off the dead body as a memento of some kind. And we have it in the collection here at Mount Vernon. It's made of silk. It's very fragile. It has Braddock's blood on it. We assume Braddock's blood. Somebody's blood. And, uh, and it doesn't go on exhibit very often. But tonight we're going to bring it out uh, for David's book talk and everybody will get a chance to see it. A remarkable thing uh, I don't know how much you know about it it's uh, uh, it's it's an example of a kind of weaving known as sprang um, mm-hmm. it's got a date on it 1709 right which means it's likely his father's that's the date his father was commissioned as a major general that's correct uh, and presumably these things this they're they're made of silk their tensile strength is enormous and it allows people to sort of carry officers as if on a litter off the field when they're wounded, and so um both uh ornamental and practical embellishment right what am i missing i um i was very uh
2: very pleased to learn uh about the uh the seamstress who uh made a made an exact uh, That's right reproduction yeah. of, of the sash and field tested it <laughs> uh, yeah to we see <laughs> That's right. We have a yep. video
1: on the Mount Vernon website of someone being carried in the exact right. replica of Braddock's sash, although right. it was a, a smaller person than Braddock, probably. But uh, there but yeah. is
2: a, there's actually a, a um, I believe it's a 1756 court martial record mm. um, involving a, a survivor of the um an enlisted man who um, who related his his uh, his actions during the battle, and he mentions in this uh, this testimony that um, during the retreat that there was a makeshift gurney mm-hmm. that um, the British used to carry uh, General Braddock. Yeah, mm-hmm. mm-hmm. and he mentioned that there were there were poles mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. in this uh, this gurney. Uh, he There was nothing said about a a sash, per se, but I I wonder if Mm -hmm. if that wasn't uh, in in use there, this uh, this makeshift
1: gurney. Well, that's how it would have been. you wrap it in poles and just carry the person. Right. More like a litter, but the gurney, who knows. At any rate, uh, we look forward to seeing that tonight, and I encourage everybody to check out our webpage and read all about Braddock's sash and buy a copy of Braddock's Defeat. So thank you. Thank you very much, David. Thank you, Doug.
0: We hope you enjoyed this week's discussion. The Washington Library looks forward to continuing these conversations about our early American history. Please visit mountvernon.org forward slash library to learn more about the library's resources and programs. And remember, Mount Vernon is open 365 days a year and looks forward to welcoming you. Thank you and we'll see you next week.